Good morning. You can turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2 this Lord's Day. It feels a little different not to say turn in Matthew, but we finished up Matthew's Gospel. And uh, this week and next week we're going to be talking about Christmas and thinking about Christmas as we prepare to celebrate Christmas. And I want to go through Ephesians 2 and you'll see how that ties in. And uh, then in the, as the new year approaches, starting in January, we're going to begin our next study of going through Genesis. Uh, But for this morning, we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And I'm going to read this and then pray for us, and then we'll talk through this text. And then today, we're also going to have a chance to come and celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper together. So I hope that this will be an encouraging day for all of us who follow Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead... In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you would, pray with me. Sovereign God, as we... Gather this Lord's Day, I pray that you would remind all of us of the great riches we have in Christ, of the hope that is found only in Christ. Lord, we have seen great tragedy and evil this week. We pray for those who are mourning in Connecticut and throughout our country. Father, in the midst of these things, draw our hearts and our affections to Christ. Help us to worship Christ. Help us to place our hope in Christ. Help us to see that apart from Christ, we truly have nothing. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen. It's not been but a a few weeks, but already we've seen a number of Christmas celebrations on TV. Perhaps your favorite Christmas movie has already been on. Maybe it's about to come on. Uh, my, my favorite, one of my favorite Christmas movies uh, is the very thoughtful A Christmas Story about a little boy that wants a BB gun for Christmas. Uh, if you're familiar with young Ralphie, you know that he is fixated on a Red Ryder carbine action, 200 shot, range model air rifle with a compass in the stock and a thing which tells time. Uh, he, throughout the whole movie, wants that BB gun and, of course, He's warned by many that he will 
shoot his eye out. And so he doesn't think he's going to get it. If you've seen the movie, which most of you probably have, you know that that Christmas morning, uh, all the gifts are open, papers everywhere, and then there's that scene where Ralphie's sitting there on the couch and just has kind of a glum look on his face. Christmas has been okay. He didn't get what he really wanted. And then there's that moment when his dad points out a gift in the corner. A gift that hasn't been opened yet. A gift that really is the center of attention throughout the whole movie because that gift is the much-coveted BB gun. And, of course, he then almost shoots his eye out with it. So I've watched that movie many, many, many times. I've thought that, you know, there's some parallels there to how we as believers celebrate Christmas. Oftentimes, we find ourselves on Christmas morning sitting there and all the presents are unwrapped and all the expense and busyness has been had and yet many times we've missed out on the most important gift, on the foundational gift. And many times it is still sitting there without our attention. And that is the true gift of Christmas, the gift we have in Christ. And so this Lord's Day, what I want to do today and and next Lord's Day is we... All of us are probably in the midst of a busy Christmas season, as you probably have many activities this week and next week. I want us just to pause and consider what God's Word tells us that we truly receive through Christ, the Christ child that we celebrate this Christmas season. And we're going to do that by walking through Ephesians chapter 2. Today we're going to look at the first 10 verses, then next Lord's Day we'll look at verses 11 through 21. As we look at this, I just want to point out a few of the gifts that we get to celebrate in Christ at Christmas time. The first one we celebrate is this the gift of life for dead people. The gift of life for dead people. Paul starts out in Ephesians 2 saying, And, and you were dead. Uh, this word that Paul uses here in the Greek translated, it essentially means a, an unburied corpse. There's a, there's a picture of the human condition being dead in sin. You can ask a number of people and you'll get various perspectives though on what, what our true problem is, what the human condition is. It, it basically boils down probably to three different categories. Uh, some will look at people... And they'll say that that we really aren't that bad. We don't have so many problems. And the problems that we do have, we will eventually grow out of. Some would say that we are are evolving and, and our shortcomings, we will evolve out of them. Of course, people from this perspective have a hard time explaining suffering and and evil and events like the ones that we've witnessed this week. There's a second category many people fall into, they view people truly as having problems, having sickness, that there's an issue with us, and yet they say that we can fix ourselves through, through therapy, through learned behavior. We can get better. The biblical solution, the, the biblical perspective, though, is quite different than these. The biblical perspective of the human condition is that we aren't just sick, The biblical perspective of the human condition is that we are indeed dead in our sin. Many people have a hard time understanding this though because while we say people are dead in their sin, you look at us and and even before we're Christians, we we look alive, don't we? 
And yet there's a, a picture of what this means to be dead that Jesus gives us in Luke chapter 15. If you remember Luke 15, you know the story of the prodigal son. Jesus tells a story about a son who demands his inheritance from his father. Father gives the inheritance to him and his older brother. The younger son then goes off to a far off land. He, he squanders his inheritance. He eventually returns to the father. When he returns to the father, the father bestows great gifts on his son. The older son is jealous of his younger brother. And then you'll remember this is what the father says. My son was dead. And now he's alive again. He, he was dead. What, what, what this means in the scripture when it says we are dead and our trespasses is sins, it means we are, we are dead in the sense that, that we are not alive to God, we are dead to God, we are, we are in sin, we follow sin, we sin because that's what we want to do, we follow our nature, and our nature is to sin, and our nature is that we are dead. Paul describes what this is like, he says that, that, that we walked in sin, it's, it's what we did because that's who we were. There was a a Saturday Night Live skit a few years ago that illustrated this. I would never watch such a wicked show, but Toby Lewis told me about it, so <laughs> I'll share the illustration with you. Uh, it was a skit that was mocking a show that was popular then, uh, The People's Court, and in The People's Court, in this skit, you had uh, Satan, uh, and you had someone who Satan had deceived, and the person that had been deceived by Satan was saying, well, your honor, he... He lied to me. He, he cheated me. He deceived me. And then when the camera shot went to Satan, he simply said, Your Honor, I'm Satan. That's what I do. And that's how the whole skit went. He's Satan. That's what he does. And, and in that humor, there's actually biblical truth. That, that, that's what the deceiver does. He deceives. That's what the liar does. He lies. And yet we as Christians seem to be so disturbed at times when sinners actually sin. And yet the scripture tells us that in our sinful state, in our depraved state, that that's exactly what we do. We sin because we are in sin, because we are dead in our sin. We sin because that's who we are. But Paul was saying, for those in Christ, that's not who we are any longer. That's who we were. He goes on, though, to talk about what this life of sin was. It says, verse 2, that that we follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. There's a sense here if we just we follow others into sin. We, we sin as others sin. We follow into sin. Perhaps your mother said something like this to you as you were growing up and getting in trouble. And she said, well, why'd you do it? Well, because Johnny did it. Well, if Johnny jumped off the Empire State Building, would you? I always wondered, why would Johnny jump off the Empire State Building? I don't even think Johnny's ever been to New York. I'm pretty sure they wouldn't let you jump off. The, you know, I'd go down that trail. Well, what was she trying to say? She was saying, just because someone else does something doesn't mean that you have to do it. And yet, what does the Scripture say? It says, we, we sin because we're sinners, and we do follow others into sin, because that's what our nature is to do. It's to sin. Paul is saying, this is who we were. Verse 2, he says that we were part of what was at work in the sons of disobedience. What, what a phrase there, sons of disobedience. He's saying our nature is to disobey. I wonder how many of you 
parents, grandparents have ever had to teach your child how to disobey? <laughs> you ever had to sit down with them and say, you know, Junior, uh, I've got to give you a little lesson today. You're just so obedient. I, I really just need to teach you how to say no to me. I need to teach you how to disobey me. No, no one's ever had to do that. Why? By nature, we are sons of disobedience. This is who we are. Scripture goes on to say that we live by these desires. And verse 3, that by nature we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is not saying that, that we were wrathful ourselves. The tense here is saying that, that we are children under the wrath of God. We deserve the wrath of God. Not just us, but everyone deserves God's wrath. And it's important that we recognize God's wrath is very different than how we may think about wrath. We think about wrath as you get really angry and the anger boils up and then all of a sudden wrath just explodes and that's kind of the picture we have. Yet that's not the picture we have in the Scripture of wrath. In fact, in the Scripture we see over 20 different words used in the Old Testament alone to describe the wrath of God. Wrath of God is mentioned 600 times in the Scripture. There's a, a very full picture of what God's wrath looks like and it's a, it's a wrath that slowly builds, and God is holding it back through His mercy from us. This is what one pastor, James Montgomery Boyce, said about it. Taken together, these passages indicate that God's wrath is consistent, controlled, and judicial. That is what makes it so frightening. The doctrine of wrath does not mean that God merely gets angry from time to time, lashes out in anger, and then forgets about it. It is rather that His wrath is an inevitable and growing opposition to all that is opposed to His righteousness. This is what we are deserving of. We deserve the wrath of God. And yet, you'll notice in the text, Paul started out this chapter saying, And you were. You see, the gift that we celebrate at Christmas is this is no longer who we are now. This is who we used to be. But God in His great mercy has given us life so that no longer are we under this wrath because we have received a gift of life that comes through salvation in Christ. Paul goes on to talk about this salvation and I'll unpack that as we look at our second point, the, the gift of salvation for lost people. Verse 4 begins, But God. I want you to think about that phrase for a moment. Paul has just described how we were in our sin, how lost we were, how depraved we were. Maybe times in your life where the enemy wants to remind you of who you were. Maybe today you, you feel a little unworthy. Maybe the enemy has reminded you of some things in your past. Maybe some things in your recent past. Maybe some things in your mind right now. God's reminding you this morning, for those in Christ, but God. Not, not but man, not but if you try harder, but God. The principal, foundational person taking action in this passage is not us. We are the ones in sin. The one who saves us is God, but God. He is the one who is at work, not but we. And this work He does, we see in verse 5, he, he saves us. We use this term often. We say, well, I was saved 
at church camp when I was seven. I, I went to a revival when I got saved. We, we need to pray for folks who aren't saved. We throw out this term. Paul unpacks it, though, in this passage and tells us what it means to be saved. He tells us, for example, as we walk through, that being saved means that we have received the mercy of God. He says, God being rich in mercy. Think about that for a moment. What is mercy? Mercy is not receiving what we rightly deserve. I don't mean that you deserve a bonus this year and you're not going to get it. I mean that we deserve that wrath of God. That, That wrath that God judiciously deserves to pour out on us. We deserve it, and yet in His mercy, He he holds it back. He is merciful. He he is rich in mercy. We don't get what we deserve. Now think about that for a moment. Think of what life would be like if you and I got what we deserve just by man's standards. Think of what it would be if you got a speeding ticket every time you went one-tenth of a mile per hour over the speed limit. Think of what it would be like if every time you you came within one millimeter on the other side of a regulation or a law. Uh, Think if if every time you rather unintentionally missed something or intentionally kind of fudged on your taxes, if you got audited. Uh, Think about if every time you stepped out of any regulation, uh, you were immediately punished and got a consequence for it. And that's just man's standard. Now think about what it is that we have violated in God's standard. The Scripture says we are indeed sinners. It says that the wages of sin is death. It says that God's wrath is what we deserve. And yet God in His mercy, He is is rich in His mercy. He's wealthy in mercy. He's not just merciful, He's rich in it. Think of how we compare people. This one has money. This one's wealthy and rich. We think of them having an, an abundance. And it says here that God is rich in something. And how grateful we should be. What a gift it is that the richness He has is in mercy. That we're not receiving the wrath we deserve at this moment. Paul's reminding us of this is what it means to be saved. He reminds us that God has shown us love. I I love the way he describes the love of God. He describes it with the love of God because of the great love with which He loved us. The only way he can describe God's love is to reference God's love. You can't reference God's love by thinking about our love. The two don't compare. Ours fails compared to God's. The great love that God has is the love with which God has loved us. Our love doesn't compare. Our love falls short. Think of the things that you love. The the, the people that you loved. And yet our love often is failing. Yet there are those times where perhaps we can get a glimpse of the love of God. For example, if you think as a parent of what it means to to love your child. Talking just this morning with someone who they've had a new baby in their family, and I was thinking about our kids, and was thinking about holding our, our children when they're little and having love for them. I didn't hold them and say, you know, I love you because you're letting me sleep through every night. <laughs> and you never make any mess. And you clean up after yourself and... I checked our bank account. We have so much more money now that you're here. No. Usually it's quite the opposite. Usually our children are quite a a drain. They they exhaust us. 
and yet we love them. Why? Because we love them. Perhaps we're getting just a glimpse of the great God love has for us. God has for us, not because of anything we've done. The scripture says in Romans 5.8, He demonstrates His love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We weren't doing anything of merit for the love of God, and yet He loves us. Scripture tells us that He makes us alive. This is what it means to be saved. We were dead in our trespasses, and yet He made us alive together with Christ. There's a picture here like we see in Genesis, in creation, where God creates Adam, and when He creates him, as you look at the text, He creates a corpse. Adam's dead. He's an unburied corpse, and yet what does God do? Then He breathes life into him, and that is what we receive in salvation. We were dead in our sins. God makes us alive by breathing life into us and uniting us with Christ and raising us with Christ. He does all these things, not because of us, but because of Him. It is a work of God that we are saved. It is not anything we've done to rescue ourselves. And yet so often, friends, we think that we are the ones doing the work. I saw a picture of, I believe, what God is doing. So I read a news story a number of years ago. There was a father and son, Walter and Christopher Marino, a father and his 12-year-old autistic son, we're swimming at Daytona Beach, Florida. Walter's son Christopher was largely nonverbal. In fact, he said that the only thing he would even say to him were lines from Disney movies. That's how they would communicate. He, he was fixated on Disney movies, and so they would just quote them back and forth to each other. And so they were swimming in the water, they were having fun, and then a riptide began to pull them out to sea. Walter panicked his son because of his condition didn't really panic he just kind of floated out with his dad and so he treaded water they both treaded water together and soon nightfall began to come Walter began to panic even more he couldn't hold his son and tread water so he had to let go and tread water and so he couldn't see his son any longer he would just quote lines from movies the one he began to quote was from Toy Story Buzz Lightyear to infinity and beyond to infinity and beyond to infinity, and then he couldn't hear his son's voice any longer. Walter dreaded the worst. The next day, he managed to keep himself alive until a fishing boat found him. They took him to a Coast Guard boat. The Coast Guard boat explained to him that chances were they wouldn't be able to find his son alive, and so he went down and began to mourn in the bottom of the ship as they continued their search efforts, and one of the Coast Guardman came down and told him that they had something they wanted him to see. They needed his help, and he thought he was coming up to identify the body. As he came up, they pointed out a helicopter coming and said, Walter, your son Christopher's on that helicopter. For 13 hours, his son had treaded water. They found him eight miles from the shore, still alive. But friends, 24, 48, 60 hours later... He wouldn't have lived. He needed to be rescued. I love this quote in the story. Walter said, I've never kissed so many Coast Guard men in my life. <laughs> he was so excited. Why? Because his son was rescued. His son was saved. 
Not because of what His Son had done, but because someone came and snatched Him out. And that is what happens for us in salvation. Except we're not treading water, we are a corpse on the bottom of the sea. And God reaches down in His mercy, and He pulls us up, and He breathes life into us. This is what it means to be saved. And this is the gift we celebrate at Christmas. One last that I want to point out, one last part of this gift is the gift of faith for hopeless people. Paul goes on to say that by grace we've been saved through faith. He talks about this great faith that we have, and yet it's a faith that's not of our own doing. It's a gift of God so that no one may boast. Our our faith is not because of us, it's because of God. Had a conversation on a mission trip a number of years ago with a young man in Africa, and he was explaining to me that the reason I was Christian was because I was born into a Christian family, and the reason he was Muslim was because he was born into a Muslim family, and the reason anyone believes in what they believe is because that's what they're raised in. And share with him, no, I wasn't born in a Christian family. We rarely went to church. I didn't become a Christian until I was in college. That. You're not born a Christian. You you become a Christian when you receive the gift of faith. It's not a result of you. It's It's a result of God and His providence and His sovereignty and His grace and His mercy. I pray and trust that for those raised in Christian homes, we're going to see them experience the gospel as their parents, grandparents, family members raise them in the gospel. Make no mistake about it. You're not saved because of what someone else in your family Decides. Every one of us, Romans 10, must confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead. Then we are saved. It's a work that God does and He gives and we respond to. And yet there is a role of works and that's what this passage ends with. We're, we're created for good works. We are to work, but we don't work towards faith. We work in response to faith. And there is a great difference. And if you believe that you're, you're working towards faith, then it can be an eternal difference because there's nothing we can do in and of ourselves in our own effort to receive this gift. So I want us to remember this Christmas season. As we celebrate, we're not celebrating anything we've done. We're celebrating the work that God has done in Christ for us. We're going to spend some time this morning gathered around the Lord's table together The invitation is here for anyone here who's a professing Christian, follower of Jesus Christ, to participate in this meal. You know, in the coming days, perhaps already, some of you have had meals together with people. Maybe you've had a had a Christmas celebration at work, and maybe at that that table at that meal you you rejoiced and and how business went this last year and some good things that happened, and you talked about some things coming up. You and I will gather with family in the coming days, weeks, and many of us will think about this last year and we'll look forward to things that are coming and we'll talk about who had a baby and and, and who got a job and who graduated college and we'll rejoice and we'll look forward. When we come to this table, we're going to look back and we're going to look forward as well. Except what we look to is not what we have done, but what Christ has done. This broken bread, this this cup, represent not our work. If it was our work, it would be an empty plate and an empty cup. This is what Christ has done on our behalf. 
nothing we've done to merit our salvation. It's what He has done through His body, through His sacrifice for us. And not only will we look back and remember that, we're going we're gonna to look ahead and we're going to think about the day that we place our hope in. I've watched a lot of news commentators in recent days try to explain events they can't explain and try to give hope to those they can't give hope to because our hope can't rest on man. We, we can't comfort one another in the midst of severe tragedy. I can't explain these things that have happened. But I know what the Scripture calls. The Scripture calls us to place our hope in Christ. The Scripture calls us to look to the day when there's a new heaven and a new earth and there are no more tears no more pain, no more disease, no more death, where we will be with our King Jesus forever. And friends, we need that reminder today. And that's what this table does for us. And so I want to invite our worship team to come forward, our deacons to come forward, as we prepare to receive this meal together. Before they distribute each element, we'll take an opportunity to to pray, to thank God, to, to get ready to receive these things together, to celebrate the great work that Christ has done. Scripture tells us that Jesus began that meal that we've read about not too long ago where He took bread... You think about the simplicity of that. As Jesus looked down at that table, at that meal, the most common element on that table would have been bread. Just common bread. And yet that bread represented something that was far from common. As Jesus took it and broke it and said it was to represent His body that would be broken for them. It's a reminder to us That it's not our body broken for sin. In Christ, it's His body that's broken for us. It's not our work that merits salvation. It's His work. And so as you prepare to receive this, as the deacons distribute this bread, as we get ready to receive it together, consider what Christ has done for you and I. And let's thank Him for that. Father, as we prepare to receive this bread Remind us that our salvation is not a result of our works. But Lord, it is what you have done for us in Christ, through Christ. Help us to remember these things as we prepare to receive this bread now. In Christ's name, amen.